My name is Stuart Parker, and this is my show, Cocktail Hour. You are listening to the final five episodes of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. Our final guest, Don Todd, deserves five episodes to himself. Over the course of three weeks in November of 2022, Don and I enjoyed some Sour Mash Tennessee Whiskey, good old Jack Daniels, as Don talked about his long and extraordinary life, uh, which began in uh, rural Arkansas in uh, 1930. And... uh, will take us through some momentous events and important people in uh, world history that Don encountered. Especially important is Don's uh, time on the blacklist, the Red Scare blacklist of the 1950s. He brings many insights and much information that can benefit those of us in our current cultural moment. So, please enjoy the next of the Don Todd interviews that will wrap up Cocktail Hour and leave us in the position of launching a new podcast this spring, uh, about which you'll hear more later. But for now... Pour yourself a Jack Daniels and enjoy the wisdom and accumulated knowledge of Don Todd. So to understand the next part of the story, begins in 1963, we probably have to go through a few things. Yes, not many things, but but there is background to it, you know. Um, You know, there's the why we came to Canada, and you can't just, you know, that needs explaining. Mm -hmm. Um, Well... You'd followed your supervisor, right? Yeah. I was writing a thesis, a doctoral thesis in philosophy, and, and my supervisor left. He was Canadian and went to UBC, and I either had to drop it all together uh, and get another thesis advisor and another thesis subject, because there was no one there who could who knew about the topic like I did and like, like the supervisor, my supervisor did. And, and so I was uh, desperately drawn to uh, the conclusion that I had to go follow him up to Canada. Okay, so that's a, that's 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 the stage. We arrived in in Vancouver in uh, September, first or so of September, nineteen sixty three, and I then got to work with my supervisor, and, and I wrote my thesis and so on and so forth and so on. Well, okay. at least we should find out where you were when Kennedy was shot. I remember that very. In the Buchanan building at UBC, there's on top of the Buchanan building, there's a kind of a lounge up there where uh, people would go for, uh, have their uh, coffee and, and so on in the, in the middle of the day, middle of the morning or middle of the afternoon. And I was in my office. Joanne was at home listening to uh, the radio. And she, she called me and told me uh, about uh, Kennedy's being shot. So 
and I went up and down the hall of, of the Buchanan building, the philosophy department there, and there was nobody around. So I went up to the, uh, the top of the Buchanan building where there were a number of uh, people sitting around having coffee, and I asked if they'd heard the news, and none of them had heard the news. When I told them uh, that Kennedy had been uh, assassinated, they just, it was pandemonium. They could hardly believe it. You know, that's that's where I was when Kennedy was. I mean, so I, I remember that very clearly. But let's go back earlier. All right. When when we arrived, we got an apartment uh, on Fourth Avenue near Alma, um, and there was uh, a, a bus stop across the street that I could use to ride out to UBC instead of having to drive out there in the car and park someplace. I just could ride on the bus. And every now and then there was this uh, indigenous uh, gentleman who would also uh, ride out there on the bus. He had a job, uh, I, he must have told me what it was, but I can't remember, but he was, he was it wasn't a menial job. I mean, he was well dressed, suited, suit of clothing and so on, so it must have been a serious job of some sort. But we we talking about various things, and I was, of course, eager to learn as much as I could, but he told me something which I've never forgotten, and that is this, and it pertains now to all the hullabaloo about residential schools. He was educated at a residential school, and he came, he came from a lang little language group of about 400 people, and he described his language as a prison house of the mind, which shut him out the whole world and by learning English the whole world opened up to him and he was just so grateful to the residential schools for having taught him English and he had nothing but good to say about them. Oh yes these stories yes a lot of harm was caused by the residential schools however to understand why people kept doing it yeah. it can't have just been this machine that did one thing you know Thomas Berger when he did the big um, Mackenzie Valley Pipeline Inquiry. Yeah. The indigenous people who participated were asked, you know, when they won and stopped the pipeline, they said, well, what, what was it, what would you credit as allowing you to succeed at this? These are residential schools. Yeah. That's where we learned the working language of the country. Yeah. And um, Benito Juarez, right, the, we were just, uh, you know, talking about before the recording, first indigenous person ever elected to high, you know, to the highest office in his country president of Mexico, he was, um, he lived in a place where the church ran it, and the church had translated all of its orthodoxy into his people's language, mm -hmm. and nothing else. And so he ran away from home, lived in the streets, learned Spanish, became a lawyer, became the chief justice of the Mexican Supreme Court, and then its president, and Juarez absolutely people like him strongly advocated for rapid language immersion programs that was the number one demand of the yeah. indigenous leadership in yeah. the mid-19th century and it's harder for us to understand how horribly wrong things went for so many people mm -hmm. we just if we can't acknowledge the complexity of the situation yeah well people you don't like complexity yeah Speaking of Tom Berger, that's interesting because uh, 
we moved into that apartment there on Fourth, and and uh, and we didn't know it, but there was an election going on, and we and uh, we were still unpacking when somebody knocked on our door, uh, and it was Tom Berger who was running for the NDP in that riding. Oh, you were in Vancouver, Burrard. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, um, and he, and he was running for the NDP, so. And he would have been about your age, too, at the time, yes, I would say. Yes, he's quite a young man still, you know, and I, I, we talked, and I mean, I told him I had been a member of the Socialist Party, uh, which is, I'd had in California, I'd joined the Socialist Party, because I was no longer a communist, but, ideologically, but I had joined the Socialist Party in San Francisco. So he got me in touch with the NDP, and and uh, and so as soon as I more or less could, I I, I joined the uh, NDP, and uh, and I was a member for several years. But anyway, uh, did you uh, did you uh, were you part of his leadership campaign? Right, he no. uh, tried to take out Strachan and no, no. got the booby prize. Thing? No, I was there, but I wasn't only I didn't. But at that time, I was so involved with academics, I was just, I didn't take sides. I knew, right. I knew Strachan as well as, uh, as Virgin. So, there I was, and um, busily working on my thesis. Uh, I had an office in the philosophy department at UBC, and, uh, and, um, and I, in my spare time, was, and I, and a lot of my uh, activities in the, it had to do with being on campus with the young New Democrats. Oh you know, right. Uh, they uh, they had a club on, and and I got I was in contact with a number of them, and uh, and uh, more or less uh, advised and and took advice from them on various political matters. But mostly, mostly I was given over to writing a thesis. So, anyway, I wrote the thesis, you know, passed the uh, exams and got a doctorate and, and so on. And, uh, and I was teaching at, 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 at uh, UBC and, and I was making $12,000 a year, and um, which is actually a for me, a lot of money, but that'd be like sixty thousand dollars now, sixty well, or seventy. Yeah. So Simon Fraser opened up in nineteen sixty-seven, I think it was. Was it sixty-seven? I think they. Yeah, I think it was like dedicated in sixty-five. I think the first classes were sixty-seven, though. I think yeah, you're right there. Like yeah. That. Anyway, they offered me fifteen thousand, and so I left UBC and went to Simon Fraser. Uh, I thought I was going to be rich. Well, in fact, it did enable us to buy a house out in Burnaby, a nice neighborhood. And by then, we had uh, uh, two two children, my oldest son, Jonathan, and my youngest son, Aaron, and uh, who was a baby uh, at that time. And uh, and uh, But we got a nice house out in Burnaby where the kids could go up in the nice neighborhood playing with kids running around, out, you know, and so on, those kids do. Uh, and so we moved to Burnaby. That's how I got out of there. I, I, I really re- regretted later moving to Burnaby. I, I wish we had stayed in Vancouver and had commuted to uh, Simon Fraser because there's just so much more going on in Vancouver than it was in Burnaby of interest to be at any rate. 
Well, I would imagine this is like Fourth Avenue is just about to become a, a thing, right? Yes, yes with right. the war resistors. Yes, uh, that's right. It was. it was. That's right. We had originally planned just to stay a couple of years up here and then go back, but I we liked it so much that we we wanted to stay, and, and we did. Eventually, became citizens of Canada. Life is so much better here in this in Canada than it was in the States. My uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law immigrated to Canada so they could be near to the, the kids. And so we had the in-laws here, mm -hmm. grandparents here, which was nice. Well, before they came, one, one, one summer we went down to visit them down in Arkansas. And, uh, my brother-in-law's high school graduation took place. He graduated from high school at 15 and um, and um, as it happened, he'd gotten a little bit involved with some other students with marijuana and the police were wanting to talk to him. So we took him out of Arkansas and brought him up here before they could do it. And I pulled a few strings at UBC and got him involved in, in, uh, enrolled at UBC while he was, he was 15. Uh, he was one of the youngest people ever to enroll there. Uh, I managed to pull a few strings and. So he's been here ever since as well. You know, he's now my helper. Uh, you know, I, he, he, he does my shopping for groceries and so on, various other other things. He takes me around and so on. He was 16 years younger than his sis, sister, my wife, Joanne. There's this kind of a side story about him. Yeah, well, this has nothing really to do with the rest of what I would be talking about. But anyway, he, as I say, he was 15. About that time, the hippies started up and he fell into stuff with the hippies and I always regarded the hippies as a degenerate uh, phenomenon or set of phenomena that you know, unlike the unlike the beats which they followed they made no serious contributions whatever to anybody or anything the, the, the hippies the the beats left, left behind a, a great deposit of literary achievements in poetry and fiction and so on but but the beats were, they were just nothing. And he, but he fell in with them and into very water crowds and so on and so forth and so forth. He left uh, school without graduating and, and he traveled across the country and, and some, from someplace in the east, he caught a ship to Jamaica. And he went down to Jamaica and he went into the jungles to where the Rastafarians lived to, to live with them. He, he thought they were enlightened or some goddamn thing. Uh, anyway, uh, the Jamaican police arrested him. He had registered for the draft, American draft, up here, and was thus exempt from the draft because they did not draft any American kids who from abroad. They would have to pay for many, many thousands and thousands of American kids living abroad to come back to be drafted, so they just exempted them all. He was exempt from the draft. But when the Jamaican police deported him, they deported him to Florida. And he immediately then became eligible for the draft. So they didn't draft him immediately. He came back here and uh, then he decided he would go back to college. He went to New Mexico to, to study uh, the Indians, anthropology and archaeology, uh, focusing on the indigenous people of, of that region and he had a girlfriend from New York. He, he got a call to be drafted. So the night before, they had a, a raucous all night screwing. And 
he next morning he was to go to the draft board to be inducted. So she wrote on his uh, red something or other on his on his belly, you know, war sucks. So he got to the draft board, had to drop his pants and pull up his shirt. They saw that, and and uh, and so they 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 didn't draft him. They said made him ineligible by reason of mental instability. <laughs> she, she she not only wrote War Sucks, he's, he's ext extremely well endowed, like a ah. And so she she painted his balls blue and a red and white stripe around his dick. And so they took one look at him and said, <laughs> he's ineligible by reason of mental instability. <laughs> well, they decided to come up here. They were going to get married, and they were going to come up here, and because uh, my his his parents were up here, and we were up here, and so they decided to hitchhike up. They hitchhiked to New Mexico. They were standing on the highway, just north of Los Angeles, when a young man came up to them, asked if he could join them. They said, "Sure, why not?" So. Anyway, they were standing there hitchhiking, and this car came along and stopped and picked them up. And they were driving along the highway, smoking marijuana and so forth. The car was being driven by a man named Herschel Gay from New Jersey originally, I think he was, Herschel Gay. He had been working in a car lot in Los Angeles, and he had stolen the car. So they were driving up, and at a certain point, he stopped the car, and, and they were all high on marijuana, so he stopped the car and told the boys that he had sashed some marijuana over in the woods, would they come and help him get it and, and bring it back to the car? So they did, and when they got into the woods, he pulled a gun on them, made them lie down, and he shot both of them in, in the head. The boy who had joined them was killed instantly. John had hair out like this, you know, all over the place, and his head was at a certain angle. The bullet entered the right side of his head here, but deflected and traveled beneath the skin. Oh my God! All the way around here and came out. So he had uh, on the other side. So he had he was two, scalped. Yeah, around the scalp, and he had he had a bullet hole on the right hand side and a bullet where it exited on the left hand side, and there was around. His skull was uh, a, a broad, very broad, wide band of deep purple. Oh my God! And it knocked him out, but it didn't kill him. It, he came to and got back to the road. And there was a house not far by, and he banged on the door, and they let him in. Well, and and they called the police, of course. And the police came, and and he told them about Herschel, identified Herschel Gay, and told them Herschel Gay's name, and so on and so forth. Herschel had driven off with John's girlfriend up the up the road a bit, tugging her into the woods, and where he raped her and then killed her. So the police in California, um, um, they, they uh, took care of John, and then they sent him up here and told him that when they got Herschel gay and put him on trial, he would have to come back to testify, which he did. Herschel drove up to. Mount Array and with the car, and so then he got on an airplane with money he'd gotten from John's girlfriend, her purse and everything. She had a lot of money in it. Went east someplace. Herschel made the biggest mistake of his life. 
the absolute biggest mistake of his life when he shot that boy who had joined them because that boy's mother worked in the Los Angeles offices of the FBI. You do not murder the child of one of theirs and get away with it. They, they put on a massive, massive hunt for Herschel Gay. And not a word of it got into the papers. They didn't want him picking up a paper somewhere and reading that the FBI was looking for a Herschel Gay. And not one word of it got out. They found out from the airport where he went, you know, they found out he'd flown someplace in the east in New York, uh, or New Jersey, New York, where his family was or something, and they began to track him. He also had a, a credit card, but, uh, which he uh, stole, and I don't know how he used it, because it was made out to John's girlfriend, but he managed to use it somehow. I guess people just didn't look at it very carefully, and, and they tracked him, you know, inexorably tracked him and they tracked him and they tracked him and one day he was he was uh, sitting in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very nice cool uh, bar drinking a very cold beer in New Orleans with about a dozen FBI agents Whoop! and they got him and arrested him and they didn't arrest him from you know murderers in California, they, they arrested him for car theft. Now, Herschel didn't have the sense to ask why the FBI would be tracking him and want to arrest him for a, a, a state crime. But, you know, it's not a, car theft is not a federal crime in the states unless you cross the state border with it. Right. Then it becomes a federal crime. So why, why was the FBI arresting this guy for a state crime. He didn't have the sense enough to even ask. They did not want him using the, uh, resorting to try the extradition treaty to try to prevent his extradition to California. That would have taken a long time. You know, he could have delayed his extradition. Eventually, right. no doubt, they would have extradited him, but they didn't want him doing that. So they arrested him just for car theft in California. And once they, and they, they, they flew him back to California on an FBI airplane and the hostess on the plane, you know, walked walk down the aisle at a certain point and sort of nodded her head a little bit, which told the agents there that he, they left Louisiana, Louisiana airspace. Right. And uh, so then they turned to him and said, oh yes, Herschel, we're also arresting you for the murder of um, that boy and, 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 the, and the girl. Uh, and they took him back to California and, and John went back to be the state, state's witness. He was tried, he was convicted, and he was, he was sentenced to death. But shortly after that, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled all the death penalty laws in the U.S. were unconstitutional. The Supreme Court uh, nullified all the death sentences that were pending. So uh, Herschel uh, was not executed. He uh, spent the rest of his life in San Quentin. Joanne and I were watching the news one night, and lo and behold, there was Herschel being interviewed by Truman Capote, who was writing a book on capital punishment. Herschel was saying, oh, it's not my fault. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. It's all their fault. I never used marijuana before, and it drove me temporarily insane. It got on and on and on like this. Truman Capote had 
the absolutely picture-perfect expression of skepticism <laughs> on his face. So he died in prison some years ago. So back to Canada in 67. Okay, so anyway. Um, so what I was thinking, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was when I uh, got my uh, uh, degree in history from SFU, one of the things they make you do in the honors cohort is go through the archival records of the dispute with the the um, poli sci anthropology sociology oh, people yes, and mm -hmm. the the strikes of the teach-ins and all of that so yeah. i imagine that was in the context of additional stuff that was going on there so in these early years at sfu yeah what was your take on all that well uh, i was very much opposed to PSA, Politics, Sociology, Anthropology Department, because they were running this nutty notion that, that the university could become a, a kind of a base from which they could make revolutionary forays into society at large and send their students out into society for revolutionary purposes and so on. It was just crazy stuff, really crazy. And I, I was very much opposed to them. Uh, I had run-ins with them. A couple of interesting run-ins. Well, I mean, one of them was not so terribly interesting. Students tried to prevent me from going to a classroom and teaching one day, and I got in a struggle with them and bopped a couple of them. And after that, they left me alone, didn't try to prevent me from teaching. But they had a student, this PSA had a, a PhD student uh, named Harding. Uh, what was Harding's first name? Harding, Jim Harding, I think it was. Did he end up in Saskatchewan? Yes. Yes, oh, yeah. I know him. Yeah, Jim Hardy. Well, he Jim Hardy wrote a, a PhD thesis, which the PSA sent to me to read, uh, because there was a lot of supposedly a lot of philosophy in it. Well, I read it and I was appalled. It was absolutely incompetent. He didn't have the first inkling of how to go about dealing with philosophical issues pertaining to whatever it was he was writing about. And he did a lot of uh, plagiarizing from different sources and so on and so forth and so forth. And so I wrote this uh, really long letter of, to the PSA department, you know, saying that this man does not deserve a, a PhD for this, this is an incompetent thesis, he should be failed, and so on. Well, they just ignored it and passed his thesis and passed for a PhD. So I went to the Dean of Arts. Well, by that time, the, thing, the university was in such turmoil, the Dean of Arts just didn't need any more turmoil, and he, he just wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't put a halt to it. So I went to the Viva Voce, where he was supposed to be you know, examined on his thesis. And after the PSA people uh, let him you know, ramble on and so forth, uh, and they had to open it up to anyone in the audience there. And I, I was there, so I got up to speak and address uh, issues in, about the thesis and its incompetence and so on. And the room was full of PSA students. They stood up and they were all shouting, shut up, motherfucker, shouting me down. The, the PSA people told me to sit down. They'd heard enough from me. And, and they passed it to give him the PhD. So he got the PhD. It was really outrageous, just absolutely outrageous. The, the thesis was one of the most incompetent pieces of writing I have ever seen in my life. Do you remember what he was arguing in favor of? No, there wasn't much of an argument that was discernible, really. But whatever it was, I know I don't remember all the all the details or anything. 
Well, I decided I was going to see it through anyway. So, so uh, when graduation came, mm -hmm. um, we had our robes. We put on our robes and all of that. So, and marched around. Then we marched out from the the quadrangle down that those steps to the mall where people were sitting, and uh, he was going to get his PhD. As it happened, my mother was visiting, and she had never been to a, gra a graduation thing in a, in a university before, so she was in the audience. But anyway, as as we walked out of the quadrangle and started going down towards the uh, the mall there where all the ceremonies were going to be held, there was this this chorus of PSA students standing there, and as soon as they saw me, they started shouting, "Fuck you, Doctor Todd! Fuck you, Doctor Todd!" <laughs> And I just gave him the finger and went on down. But my mother was so shocked. Terribly shocked. Okay, so Harding's turn came. There was the PhD. And the, the guy gave him the PhD. And Harding was leaving the stage there. And uh, he, he, he uh, uh, the, the chancellor of the university was uh, Shrum. And he was sitting there. He, he knelt down in front of Shrum and picked one of his legs up and started kissing his foot. You know, Shrum's foot, you know. Yeah, it really bizarre. You know, he's kissing Shrum's foot, and Shrum was an old, evil old man trying to kick, you know, trying to kick. Oh, yeah, it's like Wacky Wacky Bennett's buddy. They built yeah. the university together. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to imagine Gordon Shrum. Yeah, yeah, he was trying to kick Harding, and, and Harding was holding his foot there and kissing it, <laughs> and then got up and left. Oh, it was bizarre. What a bizarre thing. Harding was one of the people who, when they first tried to form a Green Party here, that was called the Small Party. It was led by Elizabeth May in the 79 election. Yeah. And Harding was with them. But in 83, when they tried to form the Green Party, Harding was one of these prairie Greens who objected to the formation of a Canadian Green Party and spent many years writing against the party and opposing its existence uh -huh. until um, his friend Joan Rousseau got the leadership. And then, uh, um, anyway, and then, anyway, Joan's a very good friend of his, so uh, yeah. I think, and uh, I think that's how we ended up on Jim's property. Anyway, he ended up buying a lovely piece of land in the Capel Valley that yeah. is stunning. But I can't say that, like, the, the baseline level of sanity in the Green Party was so low in the 80s and 90s. Like, these stories are in no way inconsistent with yeah. my recollections. Yeah. But when Hardy got his degree, he decided he would go back to his roots. He wasn't really indigenous. He was really, I think, a Métis, really. But anyway, he decided to winter in a teepee in, in Alberta, where he nearly froze to death. And uh, after that, he decided that he he was not going to live in a teepee anymore. They got him a job at Saskatchewan, and that's where he went. And that's that's the last I ever really heard of him. Those days uh, were uh, were just uh, terrible. The university was being torn to sh torn to shreds by these people, and I fully supported the administration when they fired all these guys. I, I thought they were absolutely right. The very idea of trying to use the university as a base for revolution and so on. It's just it was so bizarre, so crazy. That's right. We're sure living through a worse version of this today, yeah. a more absurd and more intellectually irresponsible yeah. one. Yeah, Marx was right about that. History doesn't repeat itself, <laughs> and when the effort is made to do so, it either ends in farce or tragedy. That's absolutely right. Marx was dead on about that.
anyway, they got rid of all these guys and, uh, and, uh, and they split up the PSA department. So it became then a political science department, an anthropology department, uh, and, and so on. It was uh, not, and after that, the campus was uh, much more orderly. What can I say about my career at, at, at SFU, my, my professional career? Well, I, I don't really know. I mean, I... You rose through the hierarchy, so you must have published a fair bit. I, were you I, publishing? Yes, I, I, yes, I did. Uh, and I did publish a fair bit, yes. There, there was a, a, a journal called the Journal of Symbolic Logic, which was edited by a man named Alonzo Church, the greatest American logician of the 20th century, Alonzo Church. And in the back of the book were the book reviews. And Alonzo wrote all of them. And there were only maybe four or five paragraphs long, but they were brilliant pieces of work. And he once said that he thought his best philosophical work was in those book reviews. And that kind of inspired me. I started reviewing philosophy books for the journals, not just in Canada, but elsewhere as well. And I, each of my reviews, I, I I, I did them sort of like, uh, they were longer than the three or four paragraphs of Alonzo's uh, uh, reviews, but I, I would pick a philosophical topic and then devote several pages to it. That was kind of the model. I also wrote articles, but I mean, but mostly I, 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 I became sort of the, 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 the official reviewer of A.J. Ayer's books, for example. Um, I wrote every time he wrote a book, I reviewed it. Uh, but and I this is uh, uh, and you had uh, spent much of your dissertation defending Ayer. Yes, that's right. Anyway, I did a lot of my philosophizing on, the, on, on Alonzo's uh, model, you know, uh, using the vehicle of, of reviews. But of course, I also wrote articles as well, scattered about various journals. I told Freddie Ayer, about, but I was in Los Angeles, you know, and I I, I came across. I, mean, I don't know whether I talked about this before or not, but one night I picked up a section of the Los Angeles Times, and there was a section the UCLA uh, night school. And I had sort of anchoring to go back to college and finish university. And uh, most of these were boring. I wouldn't even look at them, but, uh, but there was one course called Introduction to Philosophy. And the, and the textbooks were John Hosper's Introduction to Philosophical Analysis, which became a standard uh, book. Uh, Hume's uh, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, A.J. Ayer's Language, Truth, and Logic. Well, Andrew's Language, Truth, and Logic just set me afire. I mean, it absolutely set me afire with intellectual excitement. And I left the labor movement, went back to university, with then to, determined to get a doctorate and, and to teach philosophy. I, I told uh, Freddie Ayer about that. Uh, and uh, he just beamed. He was all he, he thought it was terrific. I mean, he he really appreciated hearing that. He was he was my inspiration to get into philosophy. Uh, so, if there are intellectual camps within the profession, is there a camp that you and Ayers are both in? Yes. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, it's um, basically my my philosophical education was. In in uh, Oxford, uh, what was called ordinary language philosophy, uh, Ox Oxford uh, ordinary language philosophy, and Ayer, phenomenological phenomenalist, 
uh, epistemological side of things. He didn't really write about ethics or anything of that sort very much. It was all epistemology and logic. And he wrote a whole series of books, a uh, long, long series. And each one of them was a kind of hard-fought retreat from language, truth, and logic. Under the impetus of criticism, you know, he fought this hard-fought retreat trying to defend as much as he could defend of, of his uh, phenomenalist views. And I, I wrote reviews of all of them. I became sort of, as I say, the official reviewer of Ayer's books in Canada. Then that, there were other things I, I wrote as well in other journals, articles on various topics, mostly having to do with epistemology. But it was a, it was a, back in the 18th century, uh, the Scottish Enlightenment was a brilliant period mm -hmm. in Scottish history, which would never have come across if it had not been for the union of Scotland with England and the UK, because the bigoted Presbyterian churchmen would, of Scotland would never have permitted it. But, it was, <laughs> but uh, there, was, uh, there was Adam Ferguson and Adam Smith, there was David Hume, various others. Uh, and an important figure was a man named Thomas Reed who is the chief opponent of Hume and Hume's approach. So Hume and Reed, Hume and Reed. And I, I tended to specialize. I had a strong interest in history of philosophy and taught a lot of history of philosophy courses in Simon Fraser. I, and I thought that, I still think Thomas Reed was quite right in his criticisms of Hume. So I became a proponent of uh, Thomas Reed and his, and Thomas Reed's philosophy usually referred to as the philosophy of common sense. He makes common sense absolutely central, and uh, I think he was absolutely right. Hume treated common sense as sort of a, a, a kind of natural, un, unreflective grab bag of uh, sort of ordinary experience and so on. Reed treated common sense as simply reason reason and it's most widely distributed degree that that distribution of degree of rationality that enables you to live a free and independent life and then engage in so anyway i became a proponent of reed and about that time other people were getting interested in reed here and there and there was a big revival in the last uh, couple of de decades of the last century in, in which i played a role in bringing about this revival of interest in Reed. A number of books on Reed appeared, so that was mostly what I was engaged in. Uh, the first few years of my career, I was teaching symbolic logic and everything, but it was boring because it never changes. It's like math, it never changes. Well, you can imagine teaching arithmetic to somebody for years and years, how boring it would be, or algebra or anything else. It doesn't change, so I, I really was getting sick and tired of it. Well, we had a we had a chap in the department, very nice guy, teaching aesthetics and the philosophy of art, but he was terrible. He was awful, just awful. And we had to let him go. We were poor. We just had to let him go. We could. He was a nice guy, but we just couldn't. We couldn't keep him. So we were sitting around in the, in the common room one day, trying to figure out what we were going to do about that gap now in the in the curriculum. And uh, we had a visiting professor of aesthetics there at the time who told the department that no one should um, teach aesthetics or philosophy of art unless he had some formal training in the subject. Well, we were sitting around the, in the common room and someone said, well, why don't you take it over, Don? He said, you like to go to operas and museums and stuff. So I jumped at the chance. But I had no 
professional training in any of the arts. So they gave me a year off uh, to go to um, Vancouver School of Art, which was one of Canada's best art schools at the time here in Vancouver. And so I went there and I studied painting for the full year. Uh, and we had a system uh, at uh, the university, we had the trimester system. And if you taught three semesters in a row, you got two semesters off in a row. So I went, then I went back to the university and was teaching. I taught three in a row, took, a, took another two semesters off and went back and I finished and I got my, they didn't have degrees at Vancouver School of Art. They called it diplomas, a diploma in, in painting from the Vancouver School of Art. Painting was the art that most interested me. So I, I, I satisfied the requirement that I have some formal training in one of the arts. So I, the rest of the time I taught then, apart from a history course now and again, I taught aesthetics and philosophy of fine art in the rest of the, my career. The two main factions in society have these rapidly diverging epistemologies, both of which are totally incompatible with the sort of folk enlightenment epistemology we grew up with. Now epistemologists are on TV from time to time, but when you were writing on this stuff, like epistemology was a real, like this was not a popular field. I wouldn't describe it as popular, but it was certainly central in, in philosophy, uh, much, much more so than say ethics or metaphysics, for example. Uh, so it was the heart of the discipline. But... It was the heart of the discipline, yes indeed. And, uh, people outside of philosophy would hardly understand any of what was going on, but it was, uh, in, in the 20th century, the English-speaking world, uh, for most of the 20th century, epistemology was absolutely central. The practice of philosophy can't proceed without an epistemology. That's it's right. the premise underlying the discipline, yeah. to a greater extent perhaps even than the yeah. existence of the really physical starts, world. Modern philosophy really starts with, with, with Descartes, who was, uh, who was, for whom epistemology was central, right. was really central. And it didn't matter whether you were whether you were born to the rationalist strand or the empiricist strand. Even for, for both of them, uh, epistemology was central. Well, you're talking about um, you know the uh, the dismantling of PSA. One of the things that's become quite upsetting within anthropology departments now is the presumed epistemology is standpoint epistemology. It's not even an epithet. Sorry, say that again? The presumed, the, the epistemology anthropologists are taught in graduate school is standpoint epistemology. Standpoint epistemology. Which is an epithet, right? What the hell does that mean? Oh, it's a term, um, it means that, what it means is that if there's a creationist in the room and a um, indigenous neo-traditionalist and a person who subscribes to the scientific worldview in the room at the same time, the earth is three different ages. That's pretty bizarre. Yes, so no, you can't say that the earth is not 6,000 years old because creationists uh, believe it's 6,000 years old, therefore it is for them somehow. Yeah. And that's like, and that's actually being sold as a legit epistemology in mainstream university programs. Oh, that's crazy. That's really crazy. That's, that's absurd. You know, that, that would be as, as absurd as indigenous physics or indigenous 
chemistry. I mean, it's just... Well, congratulations, Don. You're quoting new things that are rolling out right now. Oh, Jesus. No, one of the interesting sort of humble brags of white supremacy that underlines our current moment is the claim that math is white. Math? Yes. Math is white. It's white supremacist. And we need, and like, we need a new kind of math that isn't logocentric. That's their pejorative. This is insane. This is insane. Yes, it's like everybody you fail is now running the academy. <laughs> Things aren't that crazy at this point. So what did people find to fight about in the 70s and 80s? You mean Academically, yeah. Oh, academically? Oh, and in well, the philosophy. there were an awful lot of uh, small issues, you know. Uh, there didn't tend to be any one big, huge uh, issue that spit people. It tended to be small, intradisciplinary quarrels and, and, and so on, but with a common assumption that, that reasons could deal with these issues and, and, and straighten them all out. Philosophy was, an, was a, a, what you might call an analytical discipline at the time, rather than proponents of substantial, uh, substantial doctrines like empiricism, rationalism, and so on. It was uh, much more in, in, intradisciplinary rather than interdisciplinary. When, was, um, when people like uh, Michel Foucault and the other post-structuralists became oh, popular in the 80s, yeah. how did that affect you? Foucault. I used to, I used to pronounce it fuck all. Not much. I, it, you know, they didn't really have much to say uh, of any interest to me or to any of the other uh, professional philosophers I knew in, in, in analytic departments around the country or around the world. Because I guess they're firmly inside continental philosophy yes. and not analytic. Yeah, that's right. The big split was continental uh, and, and analytic, and of course we in the analytic school regarded the uh, continentals as being fuzzy, rather fuzzy thinkers, so there was not really much... It's not like your department was offering Foucault courses. No, oh no, 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 not at all. He wasn't thought to be worth teaching a course on. No, our courses were all within a sort of a fusion of the common sense, logical analysis approach to philosophy, analytic common sense approach. So, I, I don't know what more I could say about my career there at Simon Fraser. She pretty much just described what I did. And, and we had a very congenial department. You know, there wasn't an awful lot of friction in the department, which is kind of rare actually in mm -hmm. philosophy departments. Uh, as a matter of, I think, personalities, we, we just, uh, you know, we're very compatible, good, pleasant intellectual environment to be in. Over the course of things from an interest of mine, it's come out that other than Bob Skelly, you appear to have at least met and possibly, and, uh, and, and the most known, um, a big swath of the leaders of the NDP. You've, you've met Strachan, yes, Berger, Barrett, David, Harcourt. David Barrett and I. David Barrett and I, uh, sort of the foundation of our relationship was when I went to school at Washington University in St. Louis, at the very same time, he was across town in St. Louis University studying social, uh, social work. 
and so he was we were both in St. Louis we never met we never met then but when we did meet you know we had the fact that we were there together from that Dave and I got to know each other very well and and uh, like each other. I like Dave a lot. He got really terrible dementia, I understand, uh, towards I, I, the end. Yes, towards the end he did. I don't know what the cause of it was or anything, uh, but yes, he did towards the end, yeah. It was very sad, very sad, you know. Got to the point where he couldn't recognize anybody, couldn't recognize me or anybody, or even his own family. Oh man, what a horrifying world to, to be trapped in. Yes, you're not you're not kidding. Yeah, certainly certainly was. It was too bad. With some frequency we'd go over to uh, Victoria when when uh, Dave was in office, socialized with Dave and Strachan and some of the rest of them. And it was a it was a, an interesting period. We didn't talk philosophy, but there was no philosophical dimension to it at all. It was just personal personal and, and political. They're thought of by some people as representing the Gramscian tradition within the NDP. The Gramscian? Yeah. You got some? I, I, I don't know. I mean, to be a Gramscian, you have to be some kind of intellectual. And these guys were not intellectuals. They were down to earth, practical politicians, trade union leaders, so on and so forth. Uh, I, 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 it'd be hard for me to classify them as Gramscian. I don't know what's what's the basis of that. The um the 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 people they call the Gramscians within the party tended to favor the creation of powerful institutions that were not under the direct control of the party or the state. So they favor the creation of the Commonwealth holding societies yes. as separate from the party yes. that would function as this institution that had a more hegemonic effect in a place like Nanaimo right. or, um, you know, there were other cities that had big Commonwealth holding societies too. We just remember the Nanaimo one because it went so badly. But then the other thing was Strachan's decision to turn all these things into crown corporations, ICBC, BC yeah. ferries, yeah. all that sort of stuff, yeah. that yeah. they're both, they have an independent thing that will keep running if you lose state power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That tendency to create institutions that are interdependent but function uh, with, uh, but not so interdependent they can't function independently. Yeah. It, that's been the, the, the term people have tended to use for that tendency, which also included Bob Williams. Uh, has been that, whereas Berger and Harcourt are much more out of the social democratic tradition. Yes, yes, that's right. I knew Harcourt too way back in those days. This is when he was a lawyer before he got on city council? That's right, he was a lawyer, practicing lawyer. He had an apartment downtown, I used to visit him there. That was a long time ago, long, long time. But Gramscian, I don't know, I still can't. When I, when I was in the NDP, I tried to stay clear of factions and just have relationships, personal relationships with these people, individuals. Uh, I, didn't, uh, I really did not want to be a, a member of a faction and, uh, around someone and against the others and so on. I, I, I just didn't do that. And then, of course, eventually I let my membership lapse because I was so involved with academics, I just could no longer keep it up. The only only other figure 
that I knew very well was uh, Sven Robinson. Sven, Sven was a neighbor of mine in, Bur in Burgundy. He lived very close by. And, and one of my sons was his newsboy, newspaper boy, delivered his paper every day. And I knew Sven fairly well when he was young. I tried not not to be involved in anything like factionalism. I just I, I detest factionalism. So my relationships really were all personal rather than factional. You have been listening to part three of the Don Todd interviews, the ante-penultimate episode of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. We will be broadcasting two more episodes covering uh, the 1990s to the present, the period following Don's retirement from Simon Fraser University. This has been another episode of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in following my other work, please check out my blog at stuartparker.ca or my institute, Los Altos, at losaltos.ca. Los Altos also maintains an audio archive of the courses we have taught here on Anchor. Finally, if you're interested in supporting the work that I'm doing here, consider visiting my page on Patreon and making a monthly contribution to support independent critical thought. 